welcome everyone to The Spoken Nerd, the podcast about database technology. I'm your host, Connor McDonald, and we're going back to basics again. The last few podcasts have been interviews with some famous people in the Oracle community, but I figured it's time to get back to some simple basics for anyone that's new to the database or is looking to refresh their knowledge on some of the fundamentals. I must apologize in advance if there's a lot of background noise in today's podcast. It is absolutely bucketing it down here with storms here in Perth. There's been some hail, there's been some heavy showers. I'll do my best to get rid of those noises in the post-processing of the edit. The reality is it's very loud here at the moment, no matter what I do to try fix it. The topic for today's session is database locking. And locking is one of those strange things that is very difficult to explain to anyone that is unfamiliar with databases. The vast majority of people are unfamiliar with the concept of locking because their experience of technology is a PC or a Macintosh, which is typically by definition a single user system. And on any single user system, whether it's a database or anything else, you don't need locks. In fact, the first experience most people will have with locking when they're using a PC or a Macintosh is the familiar error message that comes in Windows or similar, which says, another process has this file open, what do you want to do? And typically most people just freak out. In my case, the various family members that have encountered this generally jump on the phone to me because I'm the only person with an IT background. And I'm sure like most listeners, you get that great phone call from a family member saying, come over please and fix the PC. But if you are indeed an IT practitioner, not understanding locks or to ignore them is to do so at your peril. This is not just a case of understanding locks in a general sense. It is vitally important if you're an IT practitioner to understand locking as it is done by the database that you are using. The locking processes in SQL Server are not the same as Oracle's. The locking processes in Oracle's are not the same as Postgres. Postgres locking is different to how DB2 does it, and DB2 is not the same as MySQL, and so on and so on. All database platforms generally have some form of row locking. Some don't because they're not yet evolved to that level yet, but no matter what the case, all of them do it slightly differently, which means all of them typically will have some different implications of how you choose to lock data and what the consequences might be. Just in case you're panicking at this moment, thinking, oh, here we go. There's going to be some marketing spin here where he tells us all that Oracle's locking is the best and everyone else's is rubbish. I'm not claiming that at all. I'm not saying anything about locking mechanisms being better or worse than others. They're all just different. And it's important to understand those differences depending on which database platform you're using. Now, maybe I will just say that Oracle's is better, but that's just a slight transgression on my part where I couldn't resist. But to give you a real-life example, I started my program career on a mainframe writing COBOL accessing DB2. In those days, running DB2 on a mainframe or MVS, every kind of access you did via DB2 took read locks. If you queried some data, you locked the data. That meant that every program you wrote had a programming model of run a query, issue a commit, run a query, issue a commit you always issued a commit immediately after doing a select statement because you needed to release those read locks. A lot of the tools that still exist to this day for DB2 and other databases that have historically done read level locking, the tools themselves handle this for you because they automatically commit after every single statement because interacting with the data means you're locking the data and therefore stopping others from being able to access the data as well. Conversely, Oracle doesn't have the concept of a read lock. As I said, that doesn't mean it's better. 
Sometimes in Oracle, you actually wish you had read locks when it comes to certain concurrency patterns. Most of the time, you don't want read locks because as the name lock suggests, it typically is stopping someone from doing work. There is one important thing I will stress about Oracle's locking mechanism. And this goes back to a podcast I've done previously on block internals. I'd encourage you to go have a listen to that one. That is, when you do lock a row in a table in the Oracle database, the locking information, the flag that says this row is locked, is stored on the row itself. The benefit of this is it means the cost of locking a row on the Oracle database is zero. You're visiting that row anyway to make a change. You're simply ticking one extra byte on that row to say the row is now locked. The cost is therefore zero. It also means that the number of row locks you can have in an Oracle database is effectively infinite, or at least as many as the number of rows you have in all the tables in your database. Continuing my thread of saying I'm not saying that Oracle's is better or worse than anyone else, the downside of this is the fact that in some databases, they have what we call a lock resource database or a list of all the locks that are currently open on the database. That means you know what rows are locked without having to visit the rows. The downside, of course, of that is the fact that you now have a limited resource. There is a fixed and finite limit on the number of locks you can have, typically memory resources or similar. That's why some databases have a thing called lock escalation, which we won't talk about in today's podcast. We'll store that one for a future session because today is about getting back to the fundamentals and the basics. But because the cost of taking a row lock in Oracle is zero and the number of row locks you can have is infinite, it's important that when you're building applications with the Oracle database, you never choose an approach based on any kind of assumptions about the limit in terms of the number of locks you can take because there is none. What you do is you choose a locking mechanism or locking strategy based solely on the data and business requirements. What locks do I need to take to ensure I don't get data corruption, for example, or at least inconsistent results? If the definition of lock is effectively prohibiting access to a resource that someone else requires, the question is, why do we lock? It sounds like something we don't want to do. And this is true in a single user system. You shouldn't lock or don't need to lock because by definition you never need to. However, of course, the reason we pay money and make significant investment in things like the Oracle database is because of its capabilities as a multi-user system. And if you have multiple users accessing a finite set of resources, then you typically do need locking to avoid data inconsistency issues. The most common of these is referred to as the lost update problem. I generally like to call it more a lack of accountability or a lack of auditability of a database in the sense that we have changes that people can swear black and blue they made and yet they appear to be invisible or lost forever. It's that lack of accountability that causes people to lose confidence in systems. So what is the lost update problem? Let's say I have people wanting to have a meeting with me over Zoom or face-to-face, etc. Let's say Dominic logs onto a system that shows the availability, my availability for the week. He looks at my calendar and sees that the slot on Wednesday is free. At the same time, somewhere else, Maria also wants to have a chat with me sometime this week. She queries my calendar and also sees that the slot on Wednesday is free. Dom thinks to himself, Wednesday works for me. I'll update that row in Connor's calendar for Wednesday so we can meet up then. And he'll commit that change. Maria, looking at my calendar, also sees that one slot on Wednesday still free and thinks, yeah, Wednesday works for me. I'll update that slot to be a meeting with me and commits that transaction. The problem here is that Dom thinks he's now 
scheduled some time with me on a Wednesday, as does Maria. Because Maria was the last to update the information, when I log on, I see Maria's entry for a catch-up. Dom's is gone. It simply has been erased. It has ceased to exist. Assuming we're running a database system to manage these calendars, you can notice that Dom and Maria here both did nothing out of the ordinary. They didn't update transaction and they both committed. There was no rules broken here about the laws of transactions in a database. There was no database corruptions. We just did normal database stuff, updates, commits, etc. But we lost one of them. There was definitely a moment in the database's history when Dom's meeting was in there. Dom saw it on his screen. He made the update. He committed it. He saw it. However, by the time the full sequence of events has completed, Maria's entry is there and Dom's has ceased to exist. It's like the old cliche, if a transaction happens in the forest and no one was there to see it, did it really happen? You might be thinking, oh, this is due to some sort of race condition. Dom did his update right at 9.35 a.m. and Maria did hers like a microsecond later, etc. But it's not that at all. Let's assume that they both queried the data at 9 a.m., therefore both seeing my calendar being free. Dom may have made his update 30 minutes later at 9.30 a.m., Maria might have made her update an hour later at 10 a.m. Because they both queried the data at 9 a.m., they see a view of the data independent of anyone else's changes. This doesn't have to be microseconds apart. In this case, this can be minutes or tens of minutes apart. It's the difference between when you looked at the data and when you went and updated it that is the governing factor here. And of course, that could be any amount of time because users take their time when they're looking and changing data. But these kind of lost updates absolutely kills applications, or more accurately, kills confidence in those applications. Because DOM in this case, or in fact any user, will literally say to you, I saw the data on screen, your calendar was free, I made a change, I updated it, the system told me that I've now made that update. And for it now to be gone or replaced with Maria's absolutely destroys confidence in an application because people think the database is literally throwing your data away, hence the term lost update. This has historically been such a large problem in any database system, in fact, any application that has multiple users, a lot of the tools that Oracle has released have handled this for you. In the old days, we had Oracle Forms, which would automatically make sure that you couldn't get a lost update. And in modern tools like Apex, the internals, the application takes care of this for you. It'll let you know if you're running into an issue of a lost update. I'm not entirely sure if the tools automatically doing this over the years has been a good thing or a bad thing for the IT industry or developers in general, because it encourages that ignorance of what is needed under the covers to manage the concept of lost updates to make sure that people have confidence in your system. Thus, the question becomes, how do we avoid this lost update issue? Given that this podcast episode is called Back to Basics on Locking, I think we can safely assume it has to do with locking the data, but what are our options? When it comes to locking data, or I should say, when it comes to locking strategies around our data, there really are two options, and they are called pessimistic and optimistic locking. In reality, in a modern IT landscape, there's only one option, but we'll start with these two options, pessimistic and optimistic, and we'll explain why later that one of them pretty much has fallen by the wayside. Let me start with pessimistic locking. It's a strange name, but what pessimistic locking means is that you are going to lock the data at some stage before you even think about updating the data. 
The term pessimistic comes from the fact that it's a reflection of your level of confidence that the data you're looking at on screen, for example, won't get attacked, destroyed, manipulated by someone else before you have a chance to update it. Your confidence level is low. You're thinking, the moment I see this data on screen, there's a good chance someone's going to get to it and change it, so I need to stop that from happening. I'm pessimistic that the data I see on screen is still the case in the database, hence the name. In an ultra-pessimistic viewpoint, I could say every time I query the data and bring it back to my screen, browser, device, etc., I'm going to lock it. In Oracle's case, that would be a select for update. That simply means that the moment I'm looking at data, it's mine. This guarantees that whatever you see on screen is exactly the state it is in the database for as long as you have it on screen. But of course, that can severely limit access to data and concurrent access to data, which is generally the reason we went and invested in a database system in the first place. After all, I could simply query some data up, head off to lunch, and if it's on my screen, it's mine, mine, mine. No one else can touch it and therefore I could easily create all sorts of problems. This is the ultra-pessimistic mode and very rarely seen. The next level up I would call mostly pessimistic. I read the data and bring it back to my advice, but at this point I take no locks on that data. So I've brought up Connor's calendar and I can see that it's currently free. The moment I choose to embark upon some sort of operation that would update the data, literally just on my screen, using my tool, whether it's Apex or Forms or any other tool. The moment I wish to commence making some changes on screen, I would immediately read the data from the database and lock it as well. Typically, I'd be doing a select for update and with an Oracle database, I'd be doing select for update no wait to make sure I don't get stuck. I want to immediately go try get that row data back again. In doing that operation, that second visit back to the database to read the data, I'm also going to pass in the values that are on the screen. So if I've currently queried an employee's records and I've got their employee hire date and say their department number on the screen, then when I go back to reread that data with a select for update, I'm going to go look for that employee, but also say where the department number equals the department number on screen and the hire date equals the hire date on screen. They're going to be in my where clause as well. The result of reissuing that query this time with a select for update Two things could possibly happen. Well, in actuality, three, but we'll go through them one by one. The first thing that might happen is the query comes back and says, yep, I'm fine. I've got that row back again, and now it's locked because I ran a select for update. That data is now mine. I haven't yet updated it, but because I've commenced some sort of operation on my screen, I've probably started typing into a field. The first thing I've done is go back to the database and make sure I can lock that row in the state that it was that I saw the data on the screen. It's got the same hire date, the same department number, etc. Now I can commence doing my work on screen because I know that I have exclusive rights on this data. The second thing that might happen is I might not be able to successfully lock that data. Two things could have happened here. One is I try to select for update and I do a no wait command to make sure I don't get stuck and I get an immediately return of a lock timeout. That means at this particular point in time, the moment at which I start typing on the screen to make some changes, someone else has this row. The application then becomes responsible to tell you, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, you were about to start making some changes, but someone else is in the middle of them, you have to wait. The third scenario that could happen is I go back to the database, I'm doing that query, select for update, no wait, 
and I get no data back. The employee probably hasn't been deleted, but because I passed in predicates of the hire date and the department number with the values I could see on screen, it probably means that someone has changed the data while I've had it on screen and committed those changes, and therefore there's been some change to the data. The data I have on my screen is now stale or out of date. Once again, the application's job is to say, oh, I got no data back from my attempt to lock it. Tell the user, by the way, the data must have changed. Please go requery it in order to actually get some data back to get a fresh look at the data. In that way, I can't get a lost update because the application plus the database are telling me that something has changed. We want you to see it first before you go ahead and actually start doing your update. But the key thing here, because we're still under the umbrella of pessimistic locking, is that if I do successfully go lock that row, it means access to it is blocked from the moment I commence making changes on my screen, whether it's Apex or Forms, till the moment I actually commit that record. That could still be an enormous amount of time. I might start typing in a change to someone's hire date, a change to their salary, a change to their department number, and then the phone might ring. I'll jump on the phone, have a conversation, etc. All of this time, the data is locked from other people until I press the save or the commit button on my application. There are other Oracle mechanisms that you can exploit if this is an issue in the sense that people might lock a row and then head off to lunch. We have facilities that effectively make sure that people can't leave their sessions idle for too long, or we have other facilities which says if their session is idle but they're blocking someone else, then by the same token, let's go kill off that session. But by default, a pessimistic lock is the moment your intent becomes to change some data, you lock it until the moment you commit that data. The lost update issue is also solved because every time we can't go back and lock the data before we make a change to it, the user is told that something has happened behind the scenes from another user session. They will see the updated data and they can make an informed decision as to whether they want to go ahead and continue the changes they are intending to do. So pessimistic locking sounds great in theory, but as we've seen, if you change the data on screen and then walk away, you've left a long running lock on your application. But perhaps more significantly, the world has changed in the sense that if I am going to take a lock on data when someone announces their intent to change it, and I'm going to hold that lock until they come back and do a commit, it means the entirety of that time frame must be spent on the same database session. That was always the case back in the client server days when we're running things like Oracle Forms and the like. But of course, the world has changed. Now we have this amazing thing called the internet with millions of users, and they all come in through a browser, and typically the applications they are using are stateless. The browser establishes communication with the database, typically through an application server, does some interaction with the database, and frees itself from the database entirely, such that the database does not have to hold a session for someone in a browser that may never return. That completely breaks the concept of pessimistic locking, because pessimistic locking is all about grabbing a lock, holding onto a session for the entire duration of someone's interaction with the database, whether they be actively involved with the database right now or not. That just won't fly in the world of browsers where people can simply disappear, never to return. The philosophy of pessimistic locking is not impossible in a stateless environment. It just requires typically a two-phased approach. First of all, when you want to announce your intent that you will be updating the data, you will come and store your username or your session ID in some specially determined column on the row and commit that change. Anyone else wanting to 
make changes to that row needs to make sure that that particular column is not populated. Then when you come back at a later moment in time to perform the genuine update, you would perform your update and release your value that's stored in this column. In effect, it is a homegrown lock flag in the same way the database has an internal lock flag on the database. This is something that is rarely seen out in the application world. As a quick segue, it is interesting, however, though, that browsers being pitched originally as just these dumb devices that make intermittent interactions with application servers and hence databases. When you think about the modern browser experience nowadays with JavaScript and Ajax and effectively most of the browser applications we use nowadays look familiar to the client server days. They seem to be constantly interacting with the database. You could almost argue that we've almost gone full circle and come back to a client server environment just in the browser. But unfortunately, from the database's perspective, it's still a model of people intermittently interacting with the database across a session pool, which pretty much means pessimistic locking is dead in the water. That's why earlier on I said we have two options, optimistic and pessimistic, but in reality, pessimistic really can't be used anymore. Because ultimately, you can't lock a row and then let that session go idle because you may wait forever for the browser to return. That brings me on to the second of the locking strategies called optimistic locking. As I've said, if we can't hang on to a lock for an arbitrary amount of time, especially in these stateless browser-based worlds, what we will do is we won't lock the data until you are ready to actually issue the update command against the database. The word optimistic is, once again, a reflection of the confidence level in being able to relocate the same data. I'm optimistic, I'm confident that no one else is going to be changing or looking at the data that I'm currently looking at. Therefore, I'll defer locking it until I actually go ahead and issue my update command against the database. Even with that optimism, we still need to avoid the lost update issue. Otherwise, people will lose confidence in our systems. With optimistic locking, when someone starts making changes on their screen, we do nothing. We let them type away, make all the changes they want to do. It's only when they hit the save or the commit button where we are about to embark upon DML against the database do we attempt to take these locks. In its simplest form, we simply fold that into the direct DML update statement we're about to issue. If I'm increasing an employee's salary, I would update the employee table, use a set command to change the salary for the employee given, but I'd also add where the salary equals the old salary I saw on the screen. And if I'm going to be thorough, any other fields that were on the screen, I would also include in my where clause, where the hire date equals the hire date I could see on the screen, and the department number equals the department number I could see on the screen, even if I had no intent to change them. I'm guaranteeing that the view of the data I have on the screen still matches what is on the database table. This is optimistic locking because I never took a lock until the moment of update. That gives me a much, much shorter lock duration, which should increase the ability for my system to scale and handle more concurrency. I'm not going to have any issues with the going to lunch syndrome where I took a lock and then someone never came back. And this works in a stateless environment because a browser will come and issue a query to get some data from the database that will be done in one session. When they come back to do an update later, it might grab another session from a connection pool, but that doesn't matter because all of the update and locking is being done in a single trip to the database. This doesn't mean that optimistic locking is some tremendous panacea. There is a greater risk of failure here because the longer I have data on the screen, but I never went ahead and locked it, 
the more likelihood there is that the data has changed under the covers when I finally come to issue my update statement. Where it can be quite frustrating for users is you end up with a much longer, what I would describe as a rewind time for the user. The user may have made 25, 30, 40 changes all on the screen, none of which was protected by locking. And then when they hit save, you might say, I'm sorry, some data was changed in the background. Please refresh your screen and commence your updates again. That could be a lot of extra work for a user community. I've even seen applications in the past which will do a mix of pessimistic and optimistic locking depending on the expected activity loads and the amount of user rework that we required. These are not mutually exclusive options. Savvy listeners may be thinking, hold on a second. If I'm going to go ahead and do an update, even with my extra wear clauses to make sure the data is still consistent with what I see on screen, just issuing an update does not guarantee protection from getting stuck in a long wait. If two people are applying the same update, one of them has to wait. In the pessimistic locking example, we did a select for update no wait to guarantee we would never get stuck on a long wait for a lock. This is true with optimistic locking if you're just doing an update. However, the whole philosophy behind optimistic locking is about the lock durations are very short. They are only during the time of the actual update being run. So even if you did get blocked, one would hopefully be freed from that lock very, very quickly thereafter. If it was an issue, there is no risk in adding a select for update preliminary step. Optimistic locking could still quite happily support when you're about to issue your update statement, the first thing you do is doing a select for update no wait to make sure that you still can lock the data with all the same existing values that were on screen. Once you've got that lock, then you go ahead and do the actual update statement. In that way, you would never get stuck for a long wait, but if you're getting long wait periods with an optimistic locking strategy, this normally suggests some other issue that needs to be tracked down. Optimistic locking works well in client-server as well, and in fact, if you're still using Oracle Forms, you can choose on a block-by-block -block basis whether you want to use optimistic or pessimistic locking, but optimistic locking really came into its own in the era of the internet and N-tier systems, where we could no longer guarantee that a user out on a browser would have continued access to the same database session. With pessimistic locking or optimistic locking, both of them have a mechanism where at the point at which I see if my view of the world, the data I have on screen, still matches that of what's on the database. I query the data, or in optimistic locking cases, I update the data where columns in the database matches the list of column data I have on screen. If I have 10 or 15 fields on the screen and I want to be thorough about making sure the data hasn't changed, that means my update statement or my select for update statement must do where column one equals the value of column one on the screen and column two equals the value of column two on the screen and column three and column four and column five all the way up to column 20. That leads to very large SQL statements plus the management of the various data types, etc. that might be there. For example, what if I have to compare a TLOB on the screen to a TLOB in the database? For this reason, some people have chosen a convenience or a shortcut approach of introducing a particular column on a table that represents the consistency for all parties involved. It could just be a version number column or a sequence number or a timestamp column, and everyone must check and change that one every time they do some updates. So rather than being forced to check, say, 20 values on the screen and how they map to 20 columns in the database, every application will also drag back this special version column. 
could be a version number, sequence, timestamp. It'll bring it back on the screen and every single person must always change that column every time they do an update. And that's the one column that everyone checks. Because everyone must change it, plus everyone must check it, typically that change is done with a trigger. You'll see a last modified by and it might be a timestamp or you might see a column called version number and it's just an ascending sequence that the trigger simply adds one to. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of that approach to be honest because it's just a redundant column, but it's useful if you're building code generators, etc. And similarly, if that column is already mandatory for say audit purposes, then it's fine to repurpose it as well. But I'm not a huge fan of just adding in arbitrary columns just because it's a little less convenient for developers to go and code queries that have predicates against the various columns on the screen. One additional option you might see out on various blogs is the Oracle pseudo function called OraRoSCN. If you head back to one of my old podcasts about terminology in the Oracle database and read consistency, you'll know that SCN stands for system change number. And given that that's effectively an arrow of time, a number that indicates change in the database, it seems an obvious candidate. I'll simply check the Aura row SCN every time doing an update. And if it matches what I queried out of the database, then I know that I'm safe to go ahead and do an update. However, the Aura row SCN has several idiosyncrasies that you would need to take into account. For a start, every table that wants to use it at a row level needs to be created with the row dependencies clause. It can't be used with indexed organized tables. And even though it sounds like something that would be attached to every single row and always be present, the Aura row SCN number can be null in certain circumstances. So be aware that if you are thinking about using Aura row SCN, there's a number of things you need to be very careful of. I won't explain them here, but you can check the show notes for a blog post by Stu Ashton, which talks about how you can work around these issues, but why you need to be very careful in the way you frame your SQL. And just finally, to return to a comment I made earlier about the fact that the Oracle database does not do read locking and some other databases do. And I knew people would say, oh, that's me getting stuck into other databases. Sometimes read locking is exactly what you want. I might want to lock a row. And therefore, while I've got my cursor open, simply by reading that row, I've locked it. And therefore, I'm not going to have to worry about other people updating it under the covers. In effect, read locking is a version of pessimistic locking. So hopefully that explains the basics of locking and the two locking strategies that are available to application developers. And as I've mentioned, in reality, probably just one, namely optimistic locking. In the next session, I'll continue talking about locking fundamentals. I didn't want this one to go into ridiculously long timeframes. Kind of things we'll talk about in the next session are just because I'm adopting a locking strategy, probably optimistic locking, does not mean I can't still hit blocking issues. We'll talk about the kinds of DMLs and the kind of blocking they might cause. We'll talk about deadlocks as well and how in reality a deadlock is not a locking problem at all. We'll also look at lock escalation and how that applies to Oracle and other databases and look at the various lock types and lock modes once we drill into a little bit more detail into how locking works inside Oracle. And finally in the next session, we'll talk about an amazing new feature in 23C that turns locking entirely on its head. Hopefully you can join me for that session and hopefully you've enjoyed this episode we've just done on locking. We'll see you all soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The music credit goes to Zanman from Pixabay Music.